Well, again, good morning. Um, if you are uh, visiting or if this is uh, your first time, we're just so glad you're here uh, at Apostles. And on behalf of the Apostles family, just want to say welcome and thanks for joining us today. Today is Pentecost, uh, and today we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit and the birth of uh, Christ's church. And so it's a great day to gather for worship. We're actually going to celebrate with a picnic after the service today. And so if you're visiting, uh, we would love for you to join us. We've got plenty of food, and we're not going to a little rain stop us uh, from celebrating and being together. So please plan to join us after. Uh, if you want to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, we've been going through uh, the book of Ephesians. And today is actually our last Sunday in Ephesians. Um, so we are wrapping things up. Uh, with the end of chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. And uh, I think it's appropriate that today is Pentecost as we look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 uh, because it focuses us in on the church and the church's fight against uh, spiritual powers in this world uh, and that we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems especially appropriate uh, today to look at these verses. So if you look with me at verse 10, Let's just jump right in. Paul begins this section, uh, this closing session, by saying, finally, which seems to make sense. It's the last part of the letters. He, he's just telling us, you know, that things are coming to an end. But he's also telling us much more than that, uh, that he says, finally, uh, in a way means ultimately. Or you might think of it in light of everything else that I've already told you up to this point. Now, finally, let me share this piece with you. Uh, that's how we should read this when we get to this final section of the letter. In light, in other words, in light of who God is, in light of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, in light of who we are, in light of how he's called us to live now as his holy people, all the things we've been talking about for the past three months. He says, in light of that, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on the full armor of God, he says. Now, why? Because, he says in verse 11, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So be strong. Put on God's armor so that you can stand against the devil. That's what he says here at the beginning of this section. And it's important for us to realize that this is critically important for Paul. This is not a footnote. This is not just something he's throwing on at the end. He's saying, look, even though you've been reborn and you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you're free to live holy lives, you still live in a fallen world. You still live in a fallen world, a world where we don't only face our own sin and the brokenness of our world, but we actually face an enemy. We, as the people of God, face a very real enemy and as Paul reminds us here, a very dangerous enemy. And so Paul doesn't want us to, to live our Christian lives following Jesus together uh, in, in any way as naive or unaware of this enemy or that we are actually living this life on a spiritual battlefield. And so this is a call. He's calling for us. Finally, be strong. Take up the armor because this is a battle and we have an enemy so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take Paul's words to heart regarding this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare. Uh, and to do that, I want us to consider four things that Paul is telling us. And so if you're uh, making an outline, if you're taking notes, this would be the outline for this morning. Who is our enemy? Paul's going to lay that out for us. How do we prepare for the battle? How do we fight this battle? 
And then what's something we have to really keep in mind? What do we have to remember as we fight this battle? So first, who is our enemy? Verse 12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces or the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly realms, he says. That's the enemy. It's a big enemy. It's intimidating. And if it's not, you're not reading it right. It should be. What's interesting about that is in 2009, the Barner Group that does research Uh, on kind of theological and spiritual issues, religious issues, surveyed 2,000 Christians. So people who say, yes, I believe and I follow Jesus. 2,000 Christians, self-professing Christians about what they believe about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Satan. Here's what's fascinating. 60%, 60% of people who say they're Christians, not just all people, Christians say they don't believe in Satan and they don't believe that he's actually a being, they prefer to see him as symbolic of just kind of general evil in the world. This is followers of Jesus saying, what Paul's describing here, I'm not buying it. Just general evil, right? Most Christians surveyed said they don't believe Satan exists. Don't believe that Satan exists. If you talk about the devil as if he actually exists, you'll be scoffed by the world on the one hand, and you'll be ridiculed as a kook by Christians on the other. That's what that says. 60% don't believe that Satan actually exists. And so a fundamental question that we have to actually ask ourselves as we begin this morning is, do I believe the Bible when it talks about a very real spiritual being called Satan? Do I believe the Bible when it talks about this being called Satan? The devil today is largely forgotten. It's hardly talked about. And I say it. It's not a person. It's an it. The devil is a being, but it is not human in any way. And so the way we speak of it matters. The way that we talk about evil in the world matters. Here's what happens today. When Satan is forgotten, everything bad that happens in our lives is attributed not to something spiritual, but to something earthly. This is what begins to happen. It's chemical. It's psychological. It's environmental. It's down to negative thinking. It's past trauma. It's problems with self-esteem. This is the language that even we as followers of Jesus can can traffic in. And please hear me. There is a place for Christian counseling and for Christian therapy, for 12 steps, for modern medicine. Don't misunderstand me. I am big believers that these are powerful tools in God's hands. But if we live as if there is no devil no adversary, no accuser, we will not be prepared or know how to respond to Satan and his spiritual attacks. On the other hand, equally damaging is the belief that there's a demon behind every bush, right? You can go too far in this. The truth is we sin. We disobey God. And not because the devil made me do it, okay, but because I chose to. Not all sickness is caused by spiritual forces of evil, though some may be. Not all earthquakes and storms are the consequence of spiritual darkness, though some may be. We sin. We live in a broken world with broken bodies and a broken creation. But the bottom line is this. You cannot fight an enemy that you don't believe exists. 
okay? So we have to believe what the Bible says. For some of us, that's the first step. Believe that Satan is real. For Paul, Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness are not a myth. They are not the stuff of fairy tales. God's word teaches from start to finish. Genesis to Revelation that Satan is real. Jesus taught that Satan and demons were real. As followers of Jesus, we must be able to say with confidence, Satan and demons and these powers and principalities, these forces of spiritual darkness that Paul is describing here are real. They're real. Now, it's not enough just to admit or acknowledge that they exist. We need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. Sun Tzu, a famous Chinese military specialist, right, who wrote The Art of War, he said this. He said, if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Man, if you could sum up Ephesians... Paul's been spending all this time. This is who you are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. That we have to know. And this is who your enemy is. And we have to know both. So what do we know about Satan? What's interesting is we're not given a biography of the devil here. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's purpose is not to fully explain the devil. What he wants us to understand is what we need to know in order to do battle with him and his forces. And so here in Ephesians chapter 6, he gives us a very sobering, And honestly, a frightening description of the forces arrayed against the church and against God. We cannot afford to be dismissive of Satan. We are also told that we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers. Our enemies are not human, but demonic. And so... I found this really helpful. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, he enumerates three key characteristics that that he can draw from this and and from Scripture generally that help us understand uh, our enemy. And he says this, our enemy is powerful, our enemy is wicked, and our enemy is cunning. Powerful, they're powerful. The devil is no cartoon, all right? It's not a Halloween costume. Paul calls these evil powers and principalities. They they are called rulers in this present darkness. They have power. They have real power, and they have authority. In Matthew 4, we get a glimpse of this when Satan himself claims to be able to give Jesus what? The kingdoms of the earth. He says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything because I have authority on the earth to do that. Peter calls him a, a lion, ravenous lion prowling around, waiting to devour us. So we must be clear, Satan's power is real. On the other hand, it never, never challenges God's power. This is not two equal powers warring it out over our souls. Satan's power never challenges God's sovereignty over the victory of sin and death and evil. He is sovereign. God is sovereign. And the war has been won by Christ on the cross, even though these spiritual battles continue in our lives. So first, they're powerful. Second, they're wicked. Power itself is not evil, okay? Power itself is not evil, but power can be used either productively or destructively. And so power in the hands of the wicked works to destroy what is good. Satan and his demons hate all that's good. They hate God and they hate you. They hate me. They hate. It's what they do. Everything they do is evil and it's for evil ends. There is no good in them and they are ruthlessly in pursuit of evil ends, period. They're evil. They're wicked. And then third, they're cunning. 
In verse 11, Paul refers to the schemes of the devil. I love what the King James Bible says here. It says, the wiles of the devil, right? The wiles of the devil. Wily coyote just pops right in my head, right? Satan, Satan has schemes, is what the ESV said. He, he, he is wily. Satan, the serpent, has many weapons, okay? He has many strategies, but his most effective are the most subtle. Spiritual attack and the ebb and flow of our daily lives rarely means open persecution or temptation. Those seasons come. Those moments come. But more so, more often, it comes in the form of compromise. Just a little bit on God's truth. Compromise. Just give a little bit into that temptation to sin. I love what John Stott says again. He says, the wiles of the devil take many forms, but he is at his wiliest when he succeeds in persuading people that he does not actually exist. To deny this reality that Satan exists is to expose ourselves all the more to this subtlety. You think he he doesn't exist. You don't see him coming because he's cunning. He's clever. So Satan is powerful, he's wicked, he's cunning, and so what that means is, for us mere human beings, right, even though we are made in the image of God, born again in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, apart from the power of God Almighty himself, we cannot defend ourselves against such powers. Only God can deliver us from this enemy. And so that's first, that's who our enemy is. Number two, how do we prepare for battle? How do we prepare for battle? First, Realize you're in a battle, right? Realize that you're actually in a battle. Charles Spurgeon says, all Christians are born warriors. And you're born a warrior because you're born into a battlefield. We have a powerful spiritual enemy that we are in a battle with, whether we have realized that or not in our Christian faith. So first, realize you're in a battle. Second, remember that we operate from victory. We operate from victory. As we face this reality, we face it at those who know the victory has already been won. These powers have been defeated at the cross and are now under Christ's feet. That's what Paul said earlier in Ephesians. Remember, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, look, God has rescued all of us from evil and death, and he's raised us up with Christ, and he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, what? Above all authority and rule and power and dominion, including these powers. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Huge difference. Huge difference. And we may lose some battles. I've lost battles in my life. You'll lose battles in your life. But we're never going to lose the war. Christ will return and he will defeat Satan and he will disarm evil once and for all. Period. So we operate from victory. Third, know the battle's gonna be hard. Our new life in Christ is a life of peace. and It's a life of joy, and it is a life of hope. But these things are experienced in the midst of a relentless struggle with evil because this world is broken, and it's fallen, and it is under these powers. And that's why we need God's strength, and we need God's armor. Until Jesus returns and destroys Satan once and for all, we will have to fight The enemy will use our habits, our joys, our sorrows, our pleasures, our public positions, all of these things he will use as weapons of attack. And the battle will take place in our hearts and in our minds, in our homes, in our offices, in our schools, in our institutions, and yes, here in the church, in this room, in us. 
That's where the battle will take place. So know the battle will be hard. And fourth, trust in the Lord. Paul exhorts us to do two things. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We cannot fight this battle on our own or under our own strength. We prepare by admitting that we are powerless apart from the Lord. It's very counter, right, intuitive. We don't prepare by kind of ramping up our willpower. We surrender to the power of God. I am powerless, Lord, and I need your power and strength to help me in this fight. We need his protection as tools, his armor, without which we are vulnerable and exposed. And the good news is that we have it. We have all of these things. We've been filled with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he's given us what we need. Knowing this means we can enter battles with our enemy prepared. Right? We enter with humility, knowing I cannot do it on my own. And with confidence, God, you can. Humility and confidence. And so we have to prepare for the battle. Um, number three, how do we fight? I'm realizing this outline has a lot of numbers. Just stay with me. <laughs> three, how do we fight? How do we fight? This is the big number three, not a little number three. Big number three, uh, stand and put on the armor of God. That's what, that's what he says here. Paul says that. Verse 13, stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand. All right. So Paul, I love, he just stacks them up like this when he wants you to get it. Stand, stand, stand. That's what he says. You're supposed to stand. Wobbly Christians make easy prey. That's the short version. Too many followers of Jesus today are falling and falling away. It takes resolve to follow Jesus. It takes perseverance. It takes courage to stand even when the world tries to push you down or knock you off your mark. There is a lack of confidence in the gospel in the church today. There is a lack of confidence in prayer. We don't believe that we have an enemy, and so we are falling and falling and falling. We are not standing, not in our own power, but in his power. I, th I thought of this game that my kids have, I don't know where they came up with it. They love to play knock daddy down. That's their game, <laughs> right? And they're like, I have twins who are 10 and a seven-year-old. So this is some, they got some weight coming at me now, you know? And so what they do is they'll be like, Dad, can we knock you down? And I'm like, okay. And they, you know, they'll take a full run, head steam, and just try to knock me down. That's the game. And to get ready, like I know they're coming, right? So what do I do? You know, because I'm 46 and I'm six foot three, and it's a lot harder to get up now than it used to be. So I don't want to fall down, right? So I will get in a stance, and I'll crouch a little, and I'll brace myself because I know they're coming, they're going to try to knock me down. I stand. And that's what Paul's saying. You got, you got, a, you got a spiritually, you got to have a mindset where you, you enter your day with the resolve to stand, right? We're facing evil days, he says. The enemy is coming. The enemy is relentless. Do you have a spiritual mindset of readiness to stand, to obey, to trust, to love, to surrender, to give, to believe in God's promises? Yes, I will stand. That's what he says. So first stand, and then he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you're gonna be able to withstand, again, an evil day, having done all to stand. The armor of God, put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, all these things that he's gonna lay out for us. So here's the thing, Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter in Rome. He's under guard. And so it, it, it's really amazing. He, he, he draws inspiration from his imprisonment. 
He looks around and he says, man, he's like, what's following Jesus like for these Ephesians? Like they need to remember, oh, it's kind of like a soldier in their armor. And he begins to think, oh, like what would spiritual armor be for a spiritual battle? And so he says, Here, here's, here's what I think it would look like. And he goes through this whole list. I'm just going to go through this really quick. But I think it's just amazing what he gives us here. And it's worth you kind of taking your own time this week just to read through and pray through and think through. But here's the list. Verse 14, the belt of truth. So the belt is actually something Roman soldiers would wear under their outer gear. So it's underwear, right? The belt goes with the tunic under everything else. It holds stuff together. So it's like, you know, like I love going backpacking. You wear, in a cold weather, we wear a base layer. This is kind of like the base layer. It's the foundation that you put all the other armor on, right? And so the Christian belt, the foundation is truth. It's truth, the foundational truth of God's word, doctrine, right, and truth of character, moral truth, sincerity. In another way, it's, it's having God's heart, a heart that's after God's heart. That's, that's what the belt of truth is talking about. Verse 15, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covered the front and the back of the soldier, right, protected the vital organs. Our righteousness, our rightness with God is based not on our works, but on Christ's finished work on the cross. By grace we are saved, not anything we have done or will ever do. And that's huge because that means when Satan comes at you and wants to strike you down with accusations about things you've done, about ways you've failed, hit you with shame and guilt, tries to make you doubt God's love for you or to use your past against you, you're protected by the righteousness of Christ, the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, the gospel shoes of peace. Good shoes keep you from slipping and being easily pushed over in battle. Roman soldiers, they had, um, they had these shoes that had like basically like nails. They called them hobnails. They're like cleats in the bottom of them. And so they, they gave them firm footing in which they could stand and fight. And our firm footing is the gospel, the good news that through Christ we have peace with God, that God is with us and he is for us. Our good shoes mean that we can go through life proclaiming the gospel to others, and Satan hates the gospel. He hates the gospel going forth because it is God's power to save the lost, people out of his kingdom and into God's kingdom. He hates the gospel, and so he hates the shoes of peace. The shield of faith, verse 16, the Romans used these enormous shields. Don't think like little shield, head to foot, big shield, made particularly to withstand flaming arrows, which were a common uh, weapon of the time. Flaming darts, Paul says, of the enemy. Uh, what are the flaming darts of the enemy? Again, John Stott, I think just, he gives a helpful list. False guilt, false accusations, and unwanted desires and thoughts. I think that's a good place to start. The fiery darts of the enemy. And so it's by faith that we look to God for refuge, that we, we shield ourselves against these fiery darts. It's by faith that we hold on to the promises of God, that we remember all that we have to be grateful for and to give thanks for, even in times of doubt and confusion, depression and temptation. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Romans used uh, metal helmets like bronze uh, or iron, and uh, these sometimes they had like a face visor or something that would kind of guard against blows from swords or from axes. And Paul says, look, we have a helmet too. As followers of Jesus, it's the hope of salvation, is what he calls it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. It is salvation we have in Jesus, that one day when Jesus com uh, con comes back, he will complete what he's begun, that he will end all of this fighting. And so we have confidence, right, that our only hope, 
against this enemy is actually that God has and that God will save us. So we don't fight in fear. Our future is not on the line. It's secure in Christ. He's our hope. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. Last one, which is the word of God, Paul says. Roman soldiers used a a short sword for close combat, right? And our sword for close combat with the enemy is the Scriptures. Enlightened so we understand them through the Holy Spirit, through God himself. Our sword is the Scriptures, which the Spirit uses to help us understand and then apply to our lives. And so the word can pierce hearts, it can prick consciences, it, it can help us discern, it can help us resist temptation, it communicates God's grace. The word is our sword. And so that's the whole armor of God. That was really fast. But again, I encourage you, go back through that list and just pray through and think through, okay, what, Paul, what are you telling me here with these pieces? Because it's really helpful. But this is the whole armor of God, and it's the whole armor of God. Did you catch that? God supplies it. He gives the armor, but it's our responsibility to put it on and to use it against the powers of evil. All right, so how do we use it? Here's a couple of quick thoughts. Just on, I'm calling this kind of words for warriors. Ways that you can apply the armor of God in the fight. All right, so first, know the word. Do you see how the word's in like all those pieces? I mean, it's there. So much of this armor is dependent on us actually knowing the truth of God's word. From the beginning in Genesis 3, Satan has been saying, did God really say that? He's been questioning the word of God. Psalm 119 says, if you want to do battle with Satan, that's what he says, hide it in your heart. I've hidden your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. Jesus resisted the devil with God's word. He knew it. He drew from it. And because he had spent time studying it, understanding it, and applying it in his life, he resisted the devil. So know God's word. Second, don't react. Anticipate. Don't react. Anticipate. Um, I, heard, I heard a motivational speaker say it this way. He said, winners anticipate, losers react, Right? Don't be a loser, <laughs> okay? Spiritual battles that you're gonna face tomorrow or, or next week or next year, they're not won by waiting until they come around in your life and then asking, oh, what do I do now, right? That's a recipe for failure. Good soldiers drill. You, know, you do target practice. You spar with each other. You, you, you're in top physical shape. And some of us are spiritually flabby, So I'm on my own for the next few weeks, and one of my goals is to get rid of some of the flabby, okay? And to do that, I'm riding my bike twice a day. I'm trying to cut 20 pounds. This is my way of getting accountability. You guys need to help me out, all right? Encourage me not to give up. Some of us are spiritually flabby. We don't read God's word. We don't spend time in prayer. We don't worship except for on a Sunday. We don't serve. We don't give. And then we wonder, why does my faith feel so dead? Why can't I beat this temptation, this sin in my life? Prepare your heart and your mind today for what's coming tomorrow. Spending time with Jesus every day, learning the promises of God, giving thanks to him, it's gonna prepare you to push back the lies of Satan tomorrow. Right? So don't react, anticipate. Three, don't fight alone. 
Satan loves it when he gets us on our own. It's like wildebeest, you know, lions. Just take them down when they can get them by themselves. Don't be alone. He loves to bring us down in isolation, to convince us that we're all by ourselves. I'm the only one that struggles with this thing, at least this way. No one could understand what I'm going through, what I'm dealing with. I can can figure this out. If I just keep, I can do it on my own. I can try harder to be better at this. No, you can't. You can't do it on your own. And the good news is you're not on your own. First, you have the spirit of God within you. He is with you and he is for you. Second, you have the church. You have the people in this room. People who love you and are with you. People that can share your struggles. People you can confide in and be vulnerable with trusted Christian friends. You can pray for each other. You can work together to train your hearts and minds to follow Christ in the midst of everyday life. Don't fight alone. Know your weaknesses. Last word for warriors. Know your weaknesses. Spurgeon, again, he says, I love this. He says, Satan is like a skilled fisherman. He knows the seasons. He watches the fish and their studies their behavior. He carefully selects his bait because he knows what they're most likely to bite on. You and I are the fish in that analogy, right? Satan is after us and he knows our weaknesses. We can hide our weaknesses from our closest friends, even from our spouse, but these spiritual forces, they are studying you. They are studying you and they are working to find the gaps in your spiritual armor. So know your weaknesses. Take away Satan's element of surprise. Take extra care in time and circumstances that make you particularly vulnerable to temptation. Make a plan on how you're gonna handle that next bit of juicy gossip that comes your way, right? Don't wait until it happens. Don't wait until you're out traveling for work for a week to say, okay, how am I gonna manage time in a hotel by myself with my laptop and a TV? Don't wait until you're frustrated to try to figure out your anger. Work on those things with the Lord. Know your weaknesses, right? So know our enemy. Be prepared for battle. Know how to fight. And then this is the last one, really briefly. We have to remember in the middle of the battle, we have to remember the Lord. Don't lose sight of the Lord. It sounds self-evident, but Paul says, 18 through 20, he just hits on prayer. Over and over and over again. Pray, pray. Our, our, our spiritual warfare must be just soaked in prayer. Why? He says pray for all, all things, all the time, for the whole church, all the saints. He says pray, pray, pray. Why? Because equipping ourselves with God's armor is not just some mechanical or formulaic thing that you can just figure out and work into your schedule. Right? It's not just about acquiring power so that you can leverage it in your life. It's about God. It's about life with him. Life as it was meant to be. Life to the full. And so even as we go through fighting our battles, we have to remember that life with God, ultimately, it's not a battle. Life with God, according to God, is a relationship. It's life with him in the midst of a battle. So even as we fight, we stay connected with our Heavenly Father. We need to constantly turn to Him, express our need to Him. We, we pray. That's what prayer does. It helps us live in awareness of our powerlessness, victory, and our spiritual battles. does not come by our own willpower. I can't say that enough. It comes through surrendering to God. That's how we get there.
And so we need to pray before, during, and after the battle because we can't do it without the Lord. We need the Lord. If you've ever struggled with why to pray, if you don't feel motivated to pray, read Ephesians 6. Read Ephesians 6 because that's your answer. Paul says to pray is to stay awake and alert to be watchful. To pray is to wait on God and listen for his battle plan. To pray is to have our strength renewed daily for this battle. To pray is to be filled again and again with his spirit. To pray is to be built up so that our spiritual muscles are ready for the battle. To pray is to cultivate a living, powerful faith that is contagious. Paul says to pray leads you to humility before God and confidence in Christ. To pray is to be bold, he says. To be bold. He says, pray that I might be bold to have God so fill my heart that I can't help but declare what God has done for me, the battles he's won for me, because the battle belongs to the Lord. And so pray, 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 he says. Remember the Lord. So know your enemy, prepare for the battle, know how to fight, remember the Lord. Paul ends his letter, and I feel, I feel mixed emotions about ending Ephesians today. I have so loved being in God's word together uh, over this. But I love how Paul ends this letter. He ends it the exact way he started it. He ends with these words of a prayer themselves, praying for, uh, for us, for followers of Jesus in this battle with the Lord. And so this is his prayer. This is our prayer as we end the day. Peace be to you, family of God, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. May it be so. Amen. Amen.